Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Father God, as we come to your word, as we come to the story in Genesis 19, uh, a story with cultural uh, baggage, a story of rated R violence, I ask your blessing on the one who speaks, for he is chief among sinners today, and ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us with this text and navigate us through as we work through a uh, part of your word that is both uh, underread and misunderstood. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let it be said that uh, this text from Genesis 19 is not one we want to tread on lightly today. It deals with a whole host of R-rated Bible themes, but I think with God's help and a little understanding, a little grace for your preacher, we might be able to navigate it in a way that makes sense, in a way that has something to say about uh, God's goodness for our own time. And to help us do that, I want you to start thinking this morning and having your idea Uh, in your mind's eye, the mental image of a bad guy. What is a bad guy? What does a bad guy look like? There's a number of ways you could think about it, right? If you are a fan of the Western movies, uh, the vast majority of them, of course, you can tell that the good guys are good because they wear the white hats, but the bad guys, they wear what? Black hats. Yeah, you know. And um, in the fantasy movies, right, the good guys are typically, they look like human beings, they're handsome, they're strong, and they're ruddy. You know, you get the elves and the dwarves and the hobbits and the wizards. Um, But the bad guys, the bad guys, though, um, they're ugly or they're misshapen or they wear all these, this black menacing armor. I think of the orcs and the goblins and the evil sorcerers. And it's true in cartoons, too, right? Uh, I... um, brought to mind when I thought of villains, I thought of Snidely Whiplash. Remember Snidely Whiplash, the villain who um, tried to tie uh, Canadian Mountie Dudley Do-Right's girl interest Nell Fenwick to the railroad tracks, right? Do you remember his dark cloak, his very long mustache, which he twirled menacingly, um, his pale skin, um, and his evil laugh? Mwahaha. We know what villains look like, and if we want to tell the story of a villain, if you want to look at a villain, uh, our culture has ways of identifying who a villain is, right? They have the mustache, or they look evil, or they're, they're otherwise, you know, wearing black, and, and they have menacing attributes about them. And in Genesis today, we're going to look at one of the great villains of the Old Testament, And when I say villains, oftentimes we think, well, we're kind of in the story of Abraham right now. Um, How are these guys of, uh, how are they villains to Abraham? And I'm here to say that they're not really villains to Abraham. Abraham had an encounter with the king of Sodom a couple of chapters back, and he said, nope, no thank you. I want nothing to do with you guys in Sodom. I'm going to stay on my side of the Jordan River, leave you guys be, take the spoils of war and go away. But when I say villains, I am here to say that um, these people are villains in Sodom. Um, They are villains uh, to the kind goodwill of God. That these villains are the opposition of God's goodness in Scripture. 
So when God encounters, um, when the God of the Old Testament encounters this equivalent of like nasty cattle rustlers and grotesque orcs and mustache twirling monsters who tie helpless young women to railroad tracks, when the God um, that we worship encounters that in the Old Testament world, how does he respond? And that's the question I want to look at today. Um, I want to look at how God responds to the epitome of wickedness in the Old Testament. Um, and in fact, we're going to have to do this in two parts. And so today I'm going to talk about what makes this kingdom of Sodom particularly wicked. Um, what's happening in our text? What can we identify to say that this is a particularly wicked nation? And then um, next week I'm going to talk about how God deals with it. Um, so your sermon in some sense is two parts, but I hope... Uh, to break that down in a way that is understanding of a very difficult text. I hope to take away from this brief sort of sidebar from the story of Abraham at the beginning of Genesis here, I want to take a sidebar um, and to say I hope what we take away from this is two things. Um, That God always wins, God always wins, and he goes through painstaking lengths to save. That's what I hope we take away from our time with Sodom. So let's begin at the beginning or even before the beginning of our reading today. Last week, if you have a keen memory, you'll know that Abraham had three visitors. These visitors were more than just visitors. These were visitors that were manifestations, physical manifestations of the presence of God. And these three presents come to Abraham, and Abraham lays out a feast. But at the end of this reading, we talked about this last week, of his three visitors, um, one stays back to talk to Abraham, but two peel off and start going down towards the kingdom, the city, the nation-state, or city-state, as it were, of Sodom. And um, when they enter the city, when these two angels that were with Abraham that afternoon are reached Sodom that, that evening, around dinner time, when they enter into the city, they are greeted by a man that they have secretly hoped to find, Abraham's nephew, a man named Lot. And last week, we discussed how God announced his intention to Abraham and said, Abraham, I've heard a lot of bad things about Sodom. I'm going to go check it out myself. And if they're doing wrong, I'm going to sort of bring out the Old Testament smite on them. And Abraham says in response, um, in essence, well, my nephew Lot lives there. What about Lot? And so um, if you have a keener memory, you'll find in our reading today that Abraham and Lot actually have a very similar understanding of hospitality. Here's how our reading begins. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the, gate with, at, in the gate of Sodom. This was a place of honor. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Again, if any of that sounds familiar, earlier on in Genesis 18, Abraham showed a very similar style of hospitality to these visiting uh, travelers. Both Abraham and Lot, the text says, they bow with their face to the ground. I mean, not just like, hi, nice to meet you, but I mean, all the way over. Not only um, do they do that, but they also use very formal language. My Lord, my Lords, please turn aside. Both offer water to wash their feet. Both press and insist that the travelers stop to visit. When the men do visit, both Abraham and Lot offer their guests a feast. 
Abraham's feast was cakes. Lot's feast was unleavened bread. That's basically the only difference in their hospitality style. And we are meant to see that Lot has the same kind of hospitality-infused virtue that Abraham had. Um, that here is someone who actually has a reflection of God's character manifesting itself in how they treat strangers. Um, but then the citizens of Sodom get involved, and things get very dark very quickly. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And it may not seem like it, but these two verses are filled with R-rated threats and menace and evil. Because word has gotten out that Lot is hosting guests, and a mob of men has formed around the city. Young men and old men, all the people to the last men, they surround the house, and they call into the house, bring out these men that we may know them. The Hebrew word to know is the word yada, and, and it is roughly 99% of the time a Hebrew word that means to know. And so if you want to know something in Hebrew in the Old Testament, if you want to understand something, um, then you, you know, you yada the thing, to know something in that context. But, but here's the thing, when the, in the Bible when it talks about knowing another person, it does not just mean sort of greeting them, meeting them, recognizing them. It means to, to know them as well as a husband and wife know each other. Um, and we don't have the kiddos here today who would really understand this, so I can kind of be a little bit more blunt with you about what's going on. Um, that when the scripture says that a husband and wife know each other, um, the thing that happens after a husband and wife know each other is that they have children, and that they have pregnancy, and, children, and babies come from that. And so to know each other is a reflection of an intimacy that has to do with human sexuality. And so when a mob forms outside of Lot's house and they demand to know the travelers that just came to town, it is universally acknowledged among the Bible scholars that this intent is not to simply say, wow, you guys have some visitors, introduce me, you know. Um, it's, it's actually the exact opposite. It is menace, it is threat. The intent of this mob is to do violence to these two men. They intend to sexually assault the men who have come to stay in Sodom. That's a head-scratcher for you. Why would anyone want to do this to travelers coming into town? I can relate. Um, some have said perhaps that the town, word the rumor mill got around, they thought these men were spies um, and that they were suspicious of the visitors, but still that doesn't really um, pan out in terms of why they would want to treat them that way without going through a court of law, without sort of identifying the visitors first. Um, but it makes sense when you want to figure out who is the villain of a story. In our world, right, what do we do? We make them, we make them ugly and give them black hands, uh, hats and you know, long, twirly mustaches. And we have them tie respectable women to railroad tracks. In the ancient world, culturally speaking, if you wanted to identify a villain, it was anyone who violated the strict and sacred expectation of hospitality. If you want to find someone in the ancient world and, the, and, and you're reading a book and you, they want to sort of tell you how bad is this person, they would do so slantly by saying this person is not good at being a host. In a, in a, in a city of virtue, as travelers like the ones in our reading enter the town, as they do so, when they were discovered to be travelers, that they were weary, they were sun-beaten, um, they were exhausted, 
Um, they didn't have likely water or food because they were wandering in the desert to get from place to place. Um, that what would happen is these travelers would be given water. They would be given food. They would be given rest. And if it was a smaller town, a small town community, the community would actually come together and some would chip in the bread and some would chip in the milk and some would chip in the water and we'd all come together and this whole community would say, look at this poor weary traveler. We need to get them off the road and we need to feed them and we need to to get them back to shape because that was a culturally mandated expression of God's love. How you played host to somebody was directly linked to your relationship with the divine. If you were a good person, you were a good host. This is a theme that's come up a lot in our reading because we just learned about it from Abraham two sermons ago. We just saw it at the beginning of our reading today with Lot, and now we're seeing the opposite. And we get this to some degree. If you're invited over to someone's house for dinner and they wine and dine you and they, maybe you're traveling and they give you the comfy bed and they make clean sheets to sleep on, um, you can guess that your hosts are generally people of virtue. My favorite is when you go over to someone's house to sleep and um, there's a little basket next to the bed. You know, they got some towels in there, little, little hotel shampoos that they stole from a hotel, but they brought it home to give to you. So it's kind of fulfilling its individual purpose as hotel shampoos, right? And there's, a, there's the washcloth and some th- toiletries and, 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 you know, they're thinking ahead about what does this person need? And how can I anticipate their needs so that they have a comfortable and relaxing stay? Um, I was in a wedding at Salt Lake City, I think it was last year, in fact, and, uh, you know, it was in the mountains outside of Salt Lake City. So we're talking like extreme Rocky Mountain elevation at a ski resort in the summertime. And um, the bride had arranged this wedding as the take-home gift, not just sort of, you know, a little packet of flowers, because that's not, you know, seeds, you know, let our love grow, and um, that sort of thing. She didn't just have that and the bubbles to blow as they walked out. Um, She had little bottles of water with um, Advil gel tabs attached because if you were partying all night and had a little bit to drink and you weren't from the Rocky Mountains, that altitude could be an absolute nightmare. And so she says, let me give you and think ahead of time about the problems you might actually have. And here, look, I have already provided some water and some Advil for you to go home with in case the elevation is just too much. And and so good hospitality, right, at its core is a manifestation of loving your neighbor. Uh, Going the extra mile to think in advance about someone else's needs and wants, right? You're thinking about someone else, not yourself, and then you're providing for them in advance. So good hospitality is a reflection of God's um, character. But when hospitality goes wrong, when things go wrong with hospitality, it's like the stuff of horror movies. It truly is. Um, haunted hotels, right? The place where you're supposed to get off of the road and rest and relax from your weary travels. Like, that's a whole horror movie genre in and of itself. The creepy hotel that isn't safe to stay in. You know, wicked landlords, you know? You're supposed to go home and maybe you have this landlord arrangement, but the things aren't working well with the landlord and, and that's just not working out right. And it's this whole, there's this whole genre of scary stories and scary movies um, to take, which is fundamentally the godly idea of how we treat our neighbors... And then we do the exact opposite, that we come to expect hospitality, to request hospitality in a state of weakness and are most exposed after traveling, after being wearied out. And we are met not with welcome and grace and refreshment, but with um, violence and rejection instead. And so Lot and his family and his two guests find themselves in the middle of a horror movie. They really do. 
Um, It's late in the evening. They are surrounded by a mob demanding that the two men be handed over so that they may be sexually assaulted. It's a violation of the sacred obligation of hospitality in the ancient world. And it's such a violation, you didn't need to be um, in relationship with the God of the Bible to get it. This was like common, a, a common belief amongst every sort of culture in that ancient world that hospitality was the chief way of showing your virtue. And so for the city of Sodom to treat these guests in this way is the Bible signifying to us that these are people that have not just no virtue, but negative pe- pe- virtue. They are actively wicked people. So what does Lot do in the middle of this? Um, What does Lot do in the middle of this? Um, Well, Lot responds to their villainous requests with actually, I think, some backbone and some virtue here. He exits his house and he places himself between his guests and the mob, closes the door behind him, and he tries to shame the mob into going away. Um, that's maybe not the interpretation that you've heard before. I'm going to tell you why I think that's the case now. Um, He says this, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to us to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with him, we will deal with you worse than them. And some of you have heard in this text that you might think Lot is trying to protect his guest at the expense of his daughters, that he was willing to actually bring his daughters out who were engaged at this point and let the people of Sodom um, sort of, you know, do something to them instead. And I don't think that's what's happening, I'll tell you why. Um, because at the end of the reading, People, the people who are there, the mob, the angry mob that has formed, they've said, said, look at this fellow. He thinks he's better than us. He came here as a sojourner. He's not one of us, but we welcomed him. He came here to sojourn, and now he has become a judge. He's telling us what to do. He's telling us that we are not good. And so what I think is happening here is that the, the cultural context, might, we might understand it to say this. Oh, you want to sexually assault the guests under my roof? Why not do the same to my daughters, too? You might as well. It's essentially the same thing. I think that's a valid way of understanding the back and forth that's going on here. That Lot's intent is to shame them and to say, No, you can't do this to my guests. These are my guests. They're under my roof. You might as well do the same thing to my daughters. It doesn't really work. It backfires. They say, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's judging us. He's presuming to come in here to our city. He's not one of us. Now he wants to tell us how we do things here? Absolutely not. Get him. But thankfully, Lot has two guests that are more than just two guests. And so the mob rushes in to try to grab Lot and, and these guests, and Lot is pulled back inside the door. The guests open the door. They grab him, yank him, pull him back, and close the door again. And these guests, who are more than guests, the manifestation of God in these two men, travelers, um, they strike the mob with blindness. But the man reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping at the door. Blindness, of course, is not just blindness. Blindness is an appropriate punishment given the crime in our reading. 
Throughout the Bible, the wicked and the ungodly are said to be blind to the ways of God. And in fact, St. Paul, before his conversion to become a Christian, was in the process of taking Christians, rounding them up, sending them back to Jerusalem for trial, where they would eventually be convicted and killed. And so when he's walking um, along the road uh, to uh, uh, Damascus uh, in Syria, you know, he's walking along this road to this great city to find more Christians to ship back to Jerusalem for trial. Um, what does God do? He strikes um, Paul, Saul, strikes him blind because he is blind to the ways of God. He is blind to what God is actually doing. And so um, it's no coincidence that God strikes all of these men, strikes this entire mob with blindness so that they, you know, the text says they wore themselves out groping for the door. Um, that they're trying, even in their blindness, in their rage, they think that if they can just get the guests and they can just get to, to Lot, um, they can maybe do something about the blindness. And so they're, they're crawling and trying to figure out where they are, but they can't see. Really, truly a terrifying scene. In our reading last week, God had taken upon himself a judge-like mission. He had heard that things were bad in the city of Sodom and went to go check it out for himself. And God's avatars, if you will, these angels, personifications of the divine, they enter the city of Sodom. And not a few hours into their exploratory stay to see how bad things are, they discover, yes, things are as bad as the prayers to God have described. The city was, in unity, with the exception of Lot and his family, unwilling, um, unwilling um, to come and embrace them with any sort of hospitality. You know, it's funny, right? Because in some sense, these two travelers were not spies, but on the other hand, they were. They were spies working on behalf of God himself. And look at how they were treated. They were willing to throw out the window and sought of the most basic and fundamental tenets of hospitality and morality by going to try to find these weary and sun-worn travelers who had stumbled into this city of refuge and do violence to their bodies and their spirits and their souls. Um, this is a way, this is one way in the scriptures that we can see that these are wicked people, that they are like black hat cowboys or pointy tooth goblins. This city is truly a wicked city. The traveler in the ancient Near East is a stand-in for weakness and frailty. It's a desert climate. It is hot. There is no water. There is no food. And when a traveler stumbles into town parched and hungry, desperate for relief in the ancient world, what do you do? You give them food and water and rest. Unless you are the kingdom of Sodom. This is a reflection of the love of God to weary sinners like you and me, this, this cultural idea of hospitality. When we show up at God's doorstep, exhausted and parched and hungry, what do we expect God to do? Does he intend to do violence to us when we are at our weakest? Will he kick us when we are down? Will he withhold our soup as one Bible character in Genesis does? Will he withhold our soup in exchange for our birthright? Will he deny us a cup of water until we apologize or atone for our sins? Or does God intend to show us mercy by giving us living water, the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future? Does God intend to give us, as the Lord's Prayer says, our daily bread? One of the many customs, in fact, uh, related to this idea of manners and hospitality in the ancient world was that the master of himself, the, the, the way that a, a master of the house would sort of express his desire to hospitality was to do a role reversal with his guest. 
he would call himself, the master of the house would bow as he does and say, um, Lord, the title of, of the master of the house, Lord to his guest, I am your servant. Right? And you can see it in our reading today that there is this switch that happens when, when, the, when the visitors come into Sodom and Lot meets them at the gates. Lot engages in this role reversal. What does he say? He says, my lords, to these travelers, please turn aside to your servant's house. It's Lot's house. He's not the servant. It's, it's his family. It's his, his life. But he switches it up and says, you, O oh gracious um, uh, guest, are now the Lord. And I am the servant. And if you need anything, I'm willing to be as a slave to make your stay comfortable um, on your sojourn. Um, and as a servant, you see, um, as this role reversal takes place, we can see even more deeply uh, the Christian understanding of hospitality taking shape. Um, because this reflection, again, it's a, a reflection of God's love for sinners. We can find the Christian gospel here. It's not hard to see this metaphor play out in a number of biblical metaphors. You and I stumble into the courts of heaven, exhausted, spiritually sick, hungry for righteousness, plagued by sin, in need of healing and forgiveness. And then the king of heaven leaves his throne and takes on human flesh and bring us, brings us all that that we need, the forgiveness of sin, a new life, and a place in the mansions of heaven forever. At great sacrifice to himself, this Lord-turned-servant takes upon himself the task of divine reconciliation, even shedding his own flesh on a rough-hewn cross of ancient bloody timber to protect the welcomed pilgrims who have stumbled into the divine kingdom of heaven and asked for mercy. So when the God of the cosmos has this kind of character, and it's reflected in this ancient tradition of gratuitous hospitality. And the city of Sodom throws that tradition out the window in a spectacular rejection of not just current cultural norms, but the norms of heaven. It is an affront and an offense to the character of God. It is a middle finger to the heavens. It is an outright and violent act of treason against the God who created them. In our reading today, Sodom represents the ancient world at its worst and most despicable. Next week, we're going to see the consequences for this wicked city um, and the remarkable crimes against the heavens that they've, they've done. Indeed, this city represents everything that God is against. Uh, to take the weak and the vulnerable and the exhausted and make their situation worse is everything counter to the gospel of the Christian God. How will God handle such a brazen and sinful, wanton disregard to their fellow neighbor? Well, again, that's part two. In the meantime, see in our reading a pair of men who embody the grace of God to strangers like Abraham and Lot. See how their lively faith, how Abraham and Lot's lively faith in serving their guests um, is to, to, to give of their own expense and a reflection of God's gift to us. See how their open tables are reflected in the grace of heaven, where the record books of virtuous activities are used as kindles to light the fireplace, and the hosts go so far as to die on a cross to ensure that we can attend. And he gives us instead of a little water to wash our feet, a little water poured on our head at baptism. See, in reflection to the great foil of Sodom, the love of God for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I got the feeling.
Pennsylvania.